0: That's what book you should turn to this morning. Book of Mark. Turn there right now. Mark chapter 1. It's on page 405 if you might be using one of the Bibles that you picked up when you came in this morning. I hope you guys are as excited about going to one of the Gospels as I am. If you are, say yes. Um, In our six and a half years since the Orchard Church started, I was kind of counting backstage. I believe this is our 12th book of the Bible that we will work our way all the way through. Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? Can we praise the Lord for that? I mean, that is what this church is was founded on and known for and and, you know that is predominantly how we study the word of God here. If you're a guest today as we go to a book of the Bible, start in chapter one, verse one and work our way through, every once in a while we'll take a little break and and do a small series, something topical. But predominantly we we, here's what we say here at the Orchard Church. We want to let the word of God do the talking. It's not about what I say or my words or my thoughts. It's about this book. And so we're excited to get into this next book. Hey, uh, one thing I want to announce real quick this morning. Um, You know, our Rockies are doing so great right now. I know you guys would... uh Love to go to a game to support them, and uh, Scott and Laura Norby, they are faithful members of our church, and they own uh, Innovative Real Estate Company, and once a year, they they take like a thousand people, and they had some extra tickets today, so we've got about 10 or 12 extra Rockies tickets today, so it's first come, first serve, don't storm the stage soon as the service is over, I will have them uh, out in the courtyard. I'll be kind of standing on the steps there. So if you're interested, um, we'll give them to you free. C- compliments of Scott and Laura Nordby. So just stop by and see me until, until they're gone today. If you're interested in going and helping out the Rockies today. Because they need all the support they can get. Amen. Yes. Well, as we uh, go into today the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark... Um, those of you guys that are into literature, have you ever heard of a book called the Odyssey? Maybe you read it in high school or college. Homer's Odyssey it was written like in 400 BC and then it's been translated many times from Greek. The original language is written in, into English and in 1964 uh, there was a man named Dr. E.V. Ryu. Uh, You may recognize his name. He started Penguin Publishing Company, uh, and they have what they call the Penguin Classic Series. And it was really started with his very famous translation in 1964 of Homer's Odyssey. He did such an incredible job with that translation that some people got together and they said, We should ask him to translate the four Gospels into English. And so they asked him to do that, but several people were skeptical of how he would translate it because he was a known atheist. And they were asking the question, you know, what will he make of the four gospels? I mean, will he mess them up? Will he be true to them? What will he make of the four gospels when he translates them? But his son, who had accepted Christ and was a believer, asked a different question. He said, I'm more interested in what the four gospels will make of my father. Well, he didn't have to wait very long because within the first year of Dr. Uh, Ryu translating the gospels, he became a believer in Jesus Christ, accepted him as his Lord and Savior. And I think that's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves personally today as we begin to study one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. What will the Gospel of Mark make of me? How will it affect my life? What changes will it make in my life? How will it draw me closer to my Savior as we follow Him step by step through this Gospel? And and I want to ask you this morning, will you allow God to prepare your heart For this book today and throughout this series this summer. And we sang about that. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's how this book is going to open. And the way we prepare the way of the Lord in our life is to invite Him to work in our life through His Spirit. So I'm going to ask you guys right now for just a moment would you bow your heads in an attitude of prayer, each of you individually, would you just say, Lord, prepare my heart for this book, the Gospel of Mark. Do in and through me whatever you would like to do. Teach me. What you want me to know. Help me to be a doer of your word and not just a hearer. And Father, I pray that for all of our church and everyone that will hear the gospel of Mark over these next several weeks throughout this summer, that Lord, we would ask that question, will, will we allow you to work in our heart, prepare our hearts? What will the gospel of Mark do in each of us? And we pray that you, that we would be open to your word and doers, and you would work in our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you guys some introduction as we go into chapter one this week, and Lord willing, we're actually going to complete chapter one today and still be out in time for the Rockies game at one o'clock, and the second service at 1045, but let me give you some quick introduction because it helps us, you know, I've said many times when we study a book of the Bible, the three most important questions we should ask is, is this, context, 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 context it's the three most important rules of bible study and so let me give you some context first of all the question is is the author who wrote this book well as you read this book if you, if you forget about the title that was put on there later when they put the canon of scripture together it's anonymous it does not tell us in the original writings the author doesn't say hey this is who i am writing it but it's been believed by centru- for centuries by the church that the author is guess who mark imagine that is, is Mark, or uh, also known as John Mark. John being his Jewish name, Mark being his uh, surname, his, his uh, last name, John Mark. Uh, this name may be familiar to you. Uh, the first time we read about this man, Mark, or John Mark, is in Acts chapter 12. If you remember the story when Peter was in prison, and he miraculously was led out of prison by an angel, and he showed up at a lady's house named Mary. And there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Another Mary. He shows up at the house uh, because the church was meeting there in prayer for him, and there was a young man in that house, her son, Mary's son, and his name was John Mark. This is the same John Mark. You remember when Paul went on his very first missionary journey? He took with him a, a young man named John Mark, and this is the one that in Pamphylia, we don't know exactly why. Maybe he got scared. Maybe he got nervous, thought, this isn't for me, and he left uh, Paul on that, uh, that journey. Most pol- people believe and scholars believe that Mark was a teenager. He was a young man, a teenager during the time of Christ. And a lot of people assume that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, that those men were all part of the 12. They were not. Actually, only two of them were part of the 12 and two of them were not. And, and one of them that was not one of the 12 apostles is John Mark. He was a teenager. So then that begs the question, How did he know about the life of Christ to write it down if he wasn't one of the 12? Well, as you look through Scripture, you'll find there was a very influential uh, disciple, one of the 12 that you know who was a a great influence in Mark's life, and his name was Peter, and he was certainly one of the 12. In 1 Peter 5.13, I've given you some references for further study. He even calls Mark my son. Now, he wasn't his biological son, but he was his, probably his son in the faith, and he probably led Mark to Christ and taught him everything that he knew ab- about Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, you'll find that Peter is telling Mark to write down and record the things that he had learned about Christ, and that's probably where Mark got most, if not all, of the information in the Gospel of Mark. Although he was alive during the time of Christ as a teenager, it, many believe that he followed Jesus at times. Um, Many believe we're going to see a story as we go through this gospel. There's a young man mentioned in this gospel that was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he ran and he fled naked, and it's kind of an interesting story, and many believe that that was actually Mark. But church history states this, that Mark was Peter's interpreter, and that he probably, because we don't have, you know, the gospel of Peter, but some scholars even call the gospel of Mark the gospel of Peter, because he shared it with Mark and he wrote these, these things down. Very interesting. Um, it's hard to pin an exact date, but most scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is actually the earliest gospel written. Probably sometime between 62-65 AD, the early 60s there. Um, and he wrote this during the Roman persecution of Christians. The place most believe that he wrote this from, we don't know for sure. But most believe he wrote this when he was in Rome. He was in Rome because he was probably with Peter who had been imprisoned there in Rome. And that's probably the place where he wrote it. And the people he wrote to, and this is very practical for all of us. He wrote to Gentile Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Jew, you know what you are? You're a Gentile. A Gentile is anyone that is not a Jew. So he wrote to people who were not Jews, but who had accepted Christ. So that applies to most of us today. Um, The reason we believe that he wrote to Gentile Christians is because as you study the book of Mark, there's little Old Testament scripture. We'll see a couple of them right here in the beginning, but there's little quoted because the Gentiles didn't study the Old Testament scripture. You'll also find there's no genealogy of Christ here at the beginning like Matthew because it wasn't necessary because he wasn't talking to a Jewish audience about their Messiah. He was talking to Gentiles. It wasn't necessary. And when he mentions some of the Jewish customs in the Gospel of Mark, he explains them. Well, if he was writing to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't need to explain them because they would know those customs. So that's why most believe he's writing to a Gentile audience, much like us. This is a book that's very practical to us today. What was the purpose of his writing? Most believe his purpose was to encourage suffering Christians. If you've ever suffered, say yes. Maybe some of you feel like you're suffering now. This is a book for you. It's to encourage you that Jesus understands suffering. Jesus understands pain and the trials and tribulations we go to. That's one of the main reasons of the purpose and writing of this book. Now, how does the Gospel of Mark fit in with the other three Gospels? Well, I don't want to give you the context even of the Gospels. You know, sometimes people ask, why do we have four Gospels? We have four Gospels because they all have a little different context. They come from a little different angle that's important. Matthew was certainly writing to a Jewish audience, and he was trying to prove to them that Jesus was their Messiah, And everything about his book is to let Jews know that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Luke wrote to to let us know that Jesus was truly the son of man and shows the human side of Jesus, his humanity. John wrote to let us know Jesus was the son not only of man, but the son of God and showed his deity side, that he was, was God in the flesh. Now here's the theme of the book of Mark. Why did Mark give us his gospel? It lets us know that Jesus Christ is a servant. What we'll see throughout this story and will be the theme of the Gospel of Mark is we see Jesus as the servant of God, the servant. And the Gospel of Mark emphasizes more of what Jesus did... Than what he said, you don't have a lot of his messages and his teaching in in the Gospel Mark. It's why it's one of the shorter Gospels because Mark focuses on what he did as a servant. How many of you guys got your bracelets this morning? All right, people are at the door. Like, what is this? What is this? No. Maybe now the lights are on. You can read. It's got our website on it, but it also has something else. W D J D. You know the the, the popular W W J D bracelets. What would Jesus do that went around and is still around? We didn't. This is not a typo. On your bracelet, some people are like, that's supposed to be WWJD. What would Jesus do? We're not going to study in the Gospel of Mark what would Jesus do. We're going we're gonna to study what did Jesus do. Amen? We don't have to wonder at this. We don't have to guess at this. And, and that's what Mark really focuses on in this gospel. What Jesus did as the servant of God. If you, I mean, If you like an action-packed gospel, the gospel of Mark is for you. I mean, if you like books that are shorter and not so long, this book is for you. I mean, this is kind of the reader's digest of the gospels. It really is. I mean, if you like Cliff Notes and Reader's Digest like me, this is for you. It's the shortest of all of them. It's just action-packed. It's from one scene to the next. Not a lot of details are given in some of the stories. One of the words you're going to see over and over, we're going to see it today in chapter 1, is the word Immediately. Immediately this happened, and immediately that happened, and immediately Jesus went here, and immediately Jesus did that. It's, it's Mark's favorite word in this gospel. Forty-two times he uses this word immediately as we watch Jesus the servant as he goes to work. Here's what I believe to be the key verse in, in Mark. You're in chapter one, hold your place there. Jump over just real quick to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. If you're looking for a key verse that really themes this gospel, I believe it's this one. Mark 10, thirty-four five. Or excuse me, 10.45, excuse me, Mark 10.45. It says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be, what church? Served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So we're going to really follow Jesus as God's servant through the gospel of Mark. Today we're going to look in chapter 1 at three important facts about Jesus, God's servant. And what you're going to see today is this is no ordinary servant. Let me give you three important facts john gives us today about this uh, extraordinary servant jesus number one we're going to look at the servant's identity in verses one through eleven the servant's identity mark gives us several dependable witnesses in the first 11 verses to prove that jesus was who he claimed to be from god god and a servant of god here's the first witness uh to who jesus was it's right here in verse one the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the what Son of God. I mean, the author right here, Mark, just comes right out in the very first verse and says, in case you're wondering who Jesus is, he's the Son of God. No questions asked. I mean, it's that simple. Nine times in the Gospel of Mark, he just emphatically, boldly claims Jesus is the Son of God. John is the first witness that Jesus, the servant of God, is Jesus, the Son of God. The second witness Mark gives us here to prove the identity of Jesus is in verse 2 and 3, and it's the prophets. The prophets. And this is one of the few times that he quotes the Old Testament. He says, as it is written in the, what? In the prophets, in the Old Testament, prophesied. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. And he's talking about the Messiah. Before the Messiah comes, there's going to be a messenger. He says, my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. We sang about that this morning. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of who, church? The Lord, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And what Mark is quoting here, these two witnesses, is two prophets, Malachi and Isaiah in the Old Testament. And they had prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on the scene as the Messiah that there were going, there's going to be a man, a messenger, a forerunner, To announce Jesus' arrival, and we're going to be introduced to him in just a minute. It it refers to him in verse 2 and 3 as the messenger, the voice. Some of you all know who this guy is. Can you say it? John the Baptist, and that's not his denomination, okay? He's called John the Baptist because he baptized. John the Baptist, he's the prophet that was prophesied several hundred years, almost a thousand years before he showed up on the scene, It was prophesied this would happen. And this is further proof that the prophet was here and the Messiah was here. Now, people would have understood this because in ancient times, anytime someone important would arrive in a town or a king would come to town, they would send a servant, a messenger, to prepare the people. They'd say, you know, clean up the streets, everybody get ready. You know, there's somebody important coming to your town, there's a king coming, and so there would be this person to prepare people for the coming king, and that's exactly what we have here. John the Baptist is going to prepare the people for the coming king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, we're used to that today. You know, if if the president's coming to town or somebody important, you know, it's not John the Baptist, it's nine news. You know, or it's channel four. And they say, hey, get ready. Next week, so-and-so's going to be in town. And that, that's exactly what John the Baptist was, was doing, was preparing. Now, how did John the Baptist prepare the people? You know what he, how he prepared them? Repent. That was his message, repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn from something and turn to something. Turn from your sin and turn to your Messiah. Turn to Jesus. So let, let's look at this third witness ...that we have here to prove the identity of Christ... ...and that is John the Baptist. Look at verse 4 through 8. John came baptizing. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. He came baptizing in the wilderness... ...and preaching a baptism of repentance... ...for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem... ...went out to him and they were baptized by him... ...in the Jordan River, confessing their sins... Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. This guy was quite the character. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Guess who he's talking about now? He's talking about Jesus. I, indeed, baptize you right now with water, but he's going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit, Very important, this third witness that's letting everybody know when Jesus shows up in town, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's the real deal. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And and there's this gnarly guy, John the Baptist. He's got camel hair coat. He, He eats locusts and honey. You might try that with your kids, an after school snack. I don't know. Doctors have said you can actually live on it, and actually good for you if you can stomach it. Um, he's kind of an Old Testament Elijah type, some scholars have mentioned. Now notice in verse 4, he doesn't go to the town to preach. But rather he chooses to preach his message where? In the wilderness. Everybody say wilderness. So he didn't go to the people. The people had to come out to the wilderness to him. And, and I believe there's a reason for that. He was using the wilderness as an illustration because that was the condition of the people at that time. They were in a spiritual wilderness. It had been 400 years since the end of the Old Testament since God had spoken and worked in people and most people had drifted away from him. And they were in a spiritual wilderness wandering around without any direction. And he said, you come out to the wilderness, repent of your sins, I'm going to baptize you with water so you can get ready to come out of your spiritual wilderness and be introduced to your Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now you'll notice here that he um, taught a baptism of repentance. And then he says, you know, but but then there's going to be one that comes after me that has the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between John's baptism of repentance that prepared people for Christ and what we know today in the church is the baptism of faith after someone has accepted Christ. But both baptisms illustrate the same thing. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. And those that inwardly had decided to turn from their sins and be ready for the Messiah, they were baptized. Just like today, those that turn from their sins and accept Christ, they're baptized to have that outward expression of an inward change. It was no different. But it was preparing them. Now in verse 8, when John says here, he says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit What was he talking about there? He was talking about not just something that happens on the outside, but what Jesus will do on the inside. It's a spiritual baptism that happens to everyone the moment they accept Christ. We know today that the scripture tells us when someone accepts Christ, what does God place inside of them? His Holy Spirit. They are baptized. They are immersed in the Spirit of God. John's message and baptism were meant to prepare people to, to meet Jesus. Let me give you the fourth witness. And the fourth witness. I mean if, if John the Baptist wasn't enough to prove who Jesus was. And if the prophets weren't enough. You know if that wasn't enough. And John wasn't enough. Then and Mark wasn't enough. I think this fourth witness will be enough to identify this servant. It's God the Father and the Holy Spirit. I mean I think we could trust God the Father and the Holy Spirit. If he says this is who this is people would believe it. Look at verse 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, there's one of those immediately words, coming up from the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the, what church? The Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now many people have portrayed this and think that an actual dove came down, but notice it doesn't say that there was an actual dove. The Spirit came like a dove. And landed upon him. Then a voice came from heaven. Guess who this voice is? It's God. It's God the Father. Letting everybody know who Jesus is. And the voice came from heaven and says. You are my beloved son. And who I am well pleased. Listen. I don't know about all you guys. But if I was standing there at the Jordan when this happened. I think I would believe it. If I heard the voice of God. And saw the spirit of God. And all these things going on. Yet so many people didn't. Just like so many people today, you can read all these things about Jesus and hear them, and people just go, I don't, I, I don't believe it. Th- there's a really cool thing happening right here at this point in the Gospel of Mark. You know, some people question the validity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son... God the Holy Spirit. And they say, you can't really see that in Scripture. You can't really find that anywhere in Scripture. You know what? You need to look no further than right here in verse uh, 10 and 11. If you want to find the Holy Spirit all in one place, you have it right here. You have God the Father speaking from heaven, the Holy Spirit coming coming down. And who's it coming down on? God the Son. You have the three-in-one picture right here in the Gospel of Mark. If anybody ever tries to challenge you or question you about the Trinity, it's right here in the Gospel of Mark. Isn't that cool? Say yes. It's right there for everyone to see. And we have this witness of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to God the Son that he is the servant of God. And what is he saying? Jesus is my son. He's the Messiah. He's my servant. He's the promised one. And and they give witness to who he is. Now, a lot of people ask the question, and it's a good question, why did Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, we know he wasn't a sinner. We know he didn't need to confess his sins. He didn't need to have his sins forgiven because he who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us. He was without sin. So why was he baptized? Well, the other gospels tell us, number one, he was baptized to fulfill scripture in all righteousness. And I believe the other reason he was baptized was to set an example for you and I. You know what? And, and if you need a good reason to be baptized today, look no further than the example of Jesus. I mean, if baptism was good enough for Jesus, I think it ought to be good enough for us. Amen. Great example there that he set for us. This was was a very unusual servant, Jesus. He was no er, ordinary servant. Because normally a servant would go announce the coming of the, the one that was prominent. But here we have everyone else announcing the servant coming, Jesus. He was no ordinary servant. He was the son of God. And everyone is saying the same thing. We have four witnesses here that he is no ordinary servant. So we've seen, first of all, the servant's identity. Now let's take a look at the servant's authority. Jesus was no ordinary servant in the authority that he had. When you think about it, servants are usually the ones that are under someone else's authority. Yet Jesus, God's servant, exercises great authority. And Mark describes and pictures his authority in three scenes. Scene number one, we see the authority of Jesus in his temptation. Look at verse 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with wild beasts and angels ministered to him. And isn't it interesting? The other Gospels give you great detail about this and how he was tempted three times, He quoted the Word of God. This is what I'm talking about. With Mark, he just goes, he just takes two verses. He went into the wilderness, he was there 40 days, he came out. He just gets right to the point. If you want the details, go check out Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. You can have the details of what happened. But those of you that remember the story, he was tempted three times by Satan. And he overcame with his authority all three times. He was victorious. And and here, Mark says he had authority over wild beasts and Satan. And we know in those other gospels that all three times that Jesus was tempted, what was the authority he used to gain the victory over those two temptations? It was Scripture. It was the Word of God. He quoted the Word of God. And you know, that's a very practical lesson for all of us. Those temptations in your life, those things, as Paul says, that easily beset you, that keep tripping you up over and over, you can have the same authority in your life that Jesus had when you quote the Word of God. That is what gives us our authority and our power today. Now, what's interesting, if you go back and study those, all three ways that Jesus was tempted, he quoted scripture that were directly um, addressing his temptation. You know, I think sometimes people say, okay, I know I need to quote scripture if I'm tempted, you know, and a guy sees a girl and he's lusting, and he's like, okay, I need a scripture. Jesus wept. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. No, you, you find a scripture that has to do with that temptation, That's the key. You can't just spout off, you know, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. You know, no. I mean, what? I mean, he quoted things specifically, but you could check that out. But we see his authority over these temptations. Scene number two, we see his authority not only over his temptation, but we see his authority over his teaching or in his teaching. Look at verse 14 to 22. I'm going to read a little bit more lengthy passage here. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and what, church? And believe in the gospel. And you know what the gospel is? Gospel just means good news. The good news that Jesus Christ came to save us and give us eternal life. He says, repent and believe. You see, repentance is not just turning from something It's turning from something so you can turn to something else. And Jesus says, repent, turn from your sins, and believe in the gospel. Believe in me. That was his message. Verse 16, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee. Now he's going to gather four of his disciples right here. Four of the twelve. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of what? Men, I'm gonna gonna turn you from being fishers of fish to fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and they followed him. Wouldn't it be great if we lived lives like that today? That whenever Jesus asked us to do something, we immediately did it. What a challenge! When he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, another one of his disciples he calls, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him, went after Jesus. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught, and they were astonished at his what? At his teaching. And he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. It's been well said that the scribes spoke from authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. And there's a difference. And here we see the authority of the servant in his teaching. Now in verse 15, we see his message, the kingdom of God. Don't get confused with that, that of the kingdom of God and that that Matthew talks a lot about in his gospel, which is the kingdom of heaven. I believe those are two different things. I believe the kingdom of heaven is the literal physical kingdom that Jesus will bring during his millennial reign after the tribulation we studied about in Revelation. I believe the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here, and remember he's talking primarily to Gentiles, is not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. It's a kingdom where when someone accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he begins to rule and reign on the throne of our heart, the throne of our life. It's a spiritual kingdom. Luke explains this very well. We'll put this on the screen in Luke's gospel, Luke 17, 20. Now, when he was asked, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Observation. It's not something you see literally. Nor will they say, see it's here or see it's there. For indeed the kingdom of God is where, church? It's within you. Every one of you here today that has accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and invited him into your life, you know what you invited into your life? You invited the kingdom of God. You said, I'm going to get off the throne of my life that where I rule and reign and make my own decisions and usually screw things up. I'm going to get out of the way, and I'm going to let Jesus sit on the throne of my heart and life, and I'm going to let him call the shots. That's the spiritual kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. How does this happen? When someone repents of their sins and believes in Jesus. That's how salvation takes place. We turn from our sins, and we turn to Jesus and invite him in, and he brings a spiritual kingdom in our heart and life. Verse 16 to 20 we read about Jesus teaching, and Jesus taught with such authority that four guys were willing to leave everything on the spot to follow him. Now, if you just read the Gospel of Mark, this Reader's Digest version, and you don't read the other Gospels, it sounds like Jesus is just walking by and goes, yeah, you right here, and you right here, come on. And those guys didn't know him, they hadn't heard him, and they just... But the other gospels tell us that they had already been exposed to Jesus. They had already been listening to his teaching. And it was so powerful in their life that they said when he gave them the opportunity to follow him, they were like, we're in. We're in. And I believe the more we study about Jesus, the more we read about Jesus as we go through the gospel of Mark, the more we're willing to say, I'm in. I'll follow him. I'll trust him. I believe him. I, I, I'll I'll drop everything to follow Jesus. That's what these four disciples did. Um, what is I, I ask you guys today? This practical question: What is Jesus calling you to in your life right now? What, what's he been working on you about? What is he asking you to leave that might be harmful to your walk with Christ and even your own life and your own family? What is he asking you to turn to? And are you willing to like these four disciples drop everything and say, "I'm in." I'll follow, it's Jesus, I'll trust him. Will you take that step of faith? I love here, when he, when he invited them, I mean, they left their profession, they left their family, they, they, they made no excuses to follow Jesus. I'm telling you guys, as we go through the gospel of Mark, this is not for the faint of heart. This is not for wimpy people, when you start focusing on Jesus. This is serious stuff. Verse 17, we read that they were fishermen. And and Jesus said, you know, I'll make you fishers of men. Most people think that Jesus coined that phrase, fishers of men. It was actually a common phrase during that time. It was used to describe philosophers. Philosophers, when they would teach, they would capture men's minds with their teaching. And they would say of fishermen, or they, would, or they would say of philosophers, they're fishers of men. And Jesus used that phrase to say, you know, I want to catch men not because of philosophy, but because of the authority of my teaching. I want to capture their hearts. And so this was a common description that they would have recognized. Um, it's interesting that most scholars believe that seven of the 12 disciples were probably fishermen. If I would have been during that time, I think I would have liked to follow Jesus because I like to fish, You know, and and it's interesting, why did he choose seven fishermen? Because fishermen make great disciples and ministers. Because the same thing it takes, the same type of attitude it takes and focus to be a good professional fisherman. It takes to be a good disciple, a good minister. It takes courage. It takes teamwork. It takes patience. It takes energy. It takes faith. It takes tenacity. It takes stamina. And these guys had it. Professional, professional fishermen could not be quitters. They could not be complainers. And they made great disciples. Now in verse 21 and 22, we see Jesus, when he taught, he liked to go into a place. We're going to see this throughout the gospel called the synagogue. Everybody say synagogue. <clears throat> what was a synagogue? Well, a synagogue, anytime you had 10 Jewish men over the age of 12 in any city, you could start a synagogue. And basically a synagogue was a place where they would go. it It was different than the temple. It wasn't a place where they did sacrifices, but it was a place of scripture reading. It was a place of prayer. It was a place of worship, much like the church today. And there was a synagogue there in Capernaum. And it also tells us that Peter's house was right there as well. And I want to put this on the screen, a map real quick. Um, but in, this map is is a map of the the area during Jesus' time. And you can see today where's still the Sea of Galilee, and right here on the northwest shore is a little city that's right there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. Uh, there was a group of about twelve of us that went to uh, Israel a couple of years ago in our church, and so when I read this stuff now, I see the Sea of Galilee. We we got to go on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. We got to walk through the city of ancient Capernaum, and we actually saw what many believe to be the the jesus was in the ruins of it and then about 50 yards away is the house of peter because notice it says here that they immediately went from the synagogue to peter's house and then i want to put this next pitch picture up here because this is an aerial view um, taken recently of the ancient city of capernaum and we actually walked these streets and these are kind of the ruins of the houses and this right here if you guys could see that say yes can you see that Okay, this right here is where they believe Peter's house was. They've built several churches on it and they've fallen down over the last 2,000 years. Uh, But this was where Peter's house is. And if you walk, it's about 50, 60 yards. This right here, now this is the ruins of like a 3rd, 4th century Byzantine church. But it was built on top of where they believe was the synagogue that Jesus went in. And it, and when you go to this foundation, if you get a chance to go to Israel, you'll see underneath the ruins of this, you'll see like older rocks that they believe was the foundation. And we actually got to walk in to both of these. If you've never taken a trip to the Holy Land, man, i tell you, you need to do it when you get an opportunity. We'll probably take another trip with our church sometime in, in the future and take advantage of that because these things really because they, they come alive when you see this, and so you know as as I looked at these things um, and read these things, we have this visual. And here's what was interesting, though, when Jesus taught in this synagogue, the people were blown away at his teaching. I mean, they were blown away by Jesus' authority as his, as he taught. We see the authority of Jesus in his temptation. We see the authority of Jesus in his teaching. And then number three, we see the authority of Jesus in his terms. In his terms. Jesus did things the way he wanted to do them because he was God. Look at what happens in this synagogue as Jesus is teaching in verse 23 through 28. Now there was a man in their synagogue that we just looked at with an unclean spirit. That's another way of saying he was demon possessed. And he cried out. Jesus is in the middle of teaching and this demon starts crying out through this man. And watch, this is really interesting. Saying, let us alone. This was other demons. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't that interesting that so many people didn't want to accept Jesus for who he claimed to be, yet the demons here are saying, we know who he is. We know who he is. It's sad that demons get it sometimes better than people do. They knew who he was. They knew his authority. They were scared to death. But Jesus rebuked him, this evil spirit, and said, be quiet and come out of him. You know what Jesus said here in the original language to this demon? Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. I'm in charge. I have authority. Come out of this man. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out. Then the the people are watching all this in the synagogue happen. This was not your normal day in the synagogue. This was not the normal service. Then they were all amazed so that they questioned among uh, among themselves saying, what is this? What is this? What new doctrine, what new teaching is this? For with, say it church, authority He, Jesus, commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And immediately, His fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Today, we would say, the word of Jesus went viral. I mean, word got out. There is a guy you need to hear teach. There is a guy that is casting out demons. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. It's interesting that as Jesus is doing his father's work, he is, in, he is interrupted by this demon, this evil spirit. You know, that's a great lesson for us, church. Anytime you're trying to serve God in your life, don't be surprised if there's not satanic evil forces trying to interrupt you. Because anything that God calls us to do or not do, Satan is going to call us to the opposite. And you know, I think that it can actually be an indicator we're on the right track in our Christian life when Satan is working hard to get us turned back around and interrupting us. But let me remind you of what it says in 1 John 4:4. The same authority and power that Jesus had. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have that same authority in your life. John 4:4 says, You are of God, little children. And have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Can we say amen to that? Jesus was no ordinary servant. We've seen it in his identity and who he was, we've seen it in his, his authority and how he taught, his terms and his commands, his teaching, his temptation. And then, number three, we see the servant's sympathy. This was no ordinary servant. And how he sympathized and empathized and had compassion on people wherever he went. Verse 29 to 45. And then we close this morning. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. That, they, they walked about 60 yards. We saw it there on that map. But Simon's, this is Simon Peter, it's another name for Peter, Simon. But Simon's wife's mother, which would be his mother-in-law lay sick with a fever. The other gospels say a high fever. Many people believe she was near death. And they told him about her at once. So he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. She felt so good that she served them. Now listen, you need look no further than this story right here if you want to make sure that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God because he healed Peter's mother-in-law. I'll just let that simmer for a moment. <laughs> just kidding, Mom. He heals her. He has sympathy on her and compassion. And you know what? Here's something cool. When Jesus heals, he fully heals. Yeah, if you've ever had a high fever, even when the fever's gone, it takes you several days to get over it. You know, I got the flu thing because I don't get the flu shot. So this year I got the flu, and it took me like two and a half weeks to get my strength fully back. Man, she is touched by Jesus. She's healed, and the next thing you read, she's up serving. She's helping cook dinner. She's getting the meal ready. That's how Jesus fully heals. But you know what else is cool about this? Whenever someone is genuinely touched by Jesus, the, you know what the response is? To serve Jesus. To follow him and serve him just like she did. And you know, there's no greater way to face, say thanks to Jesus than spend your life serving him. In verse 32 at evening when the sun had set they brought to him i mean word got out he's healing people he's casting out demons so this whole city is coming to the house of peter and at evening when the sun had set they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door i mean it was like a line at starbucks and he and then he healed many who were sick with various diseases He cast out many demons. He did not allow the demons to speak. I love that. Kept telling them to shut up. Because they knew him. And Jesus is pouring out his compassion and his sympathy on the people of this city. Now, this is interesting. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. You know, that verse right there, verse 35, could change our lives if we would all do that on a daily basis. And Simon, Peter, and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. But he said to them, Let us go in the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. You see, this is something we need to get here as we go through the Gospels. Jesus didn't come just to heal people physically and to meet physical needs. His ultimate purpose was to not meet physical needs, but to meet, say it church, spiritual needs. And that's what happens today. A lot of people want Jesus just to fix everything in their physical life, but they're not interested in what he wants to do in their spiritual life. And Jesus said, you know, listen, all these people are in uproar. They really don't necessarily want to hear what I have to say. They really don't want to allow something spiritual to happen in their life. They just want some physical need met. And so he said, let's go on to the next town, and I'm going to begin to preach again. That's why the word of God takes center stage here at the orchard, because at the end of the day, this is what changes people's lives. The preaching and teaching of the word of God. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And... What faith this leper had. He had enough faith to say, I know Jesus can heal me and meet my needs if he chooses to. I mean, that's great, great faith that he showed here. There's a lot of people that don't come to Jesus because they don't believe he will forgive their sins. And you know what Jesus says? He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of truth. If you will turn to Jesus, he's there waiting for you. Amen, church? And this leper believed that. He had great faith. Then Jesus was moved with compassion, sympathy on this man, and he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, say it, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And we don't have time to go into it this morning, but all throughout scripture, sin or leprosy is a picture of sin. And he was completely cleansed. The same way when we turn to Jesus and confess our sins, we are completely healed and cleansed, was the same way this leper was cleansed. And he strictly, now watch this. Jesus heals him and he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. What was his warning? And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing, those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. In Leviticus chapter 14, it said in the law of Moses, if you if you were ever You know, healed of leprosy, which hardly ever happened. It was a deadly disease; it was incurable. But if it did happen, then you're supposed to go and show that to the priest. And so, all of a sudden, Jesus sends him because he heals him to the priest, and and they're like, "We have a Leviticus 14 day. This has never happened before. We we we've not seen this." And Jesus did that to prove his power, to get their attention, that they had to deal with somebody healed this guy. Who was it? You know that we've never seen seen it like this. But then notice in verse 45. Now remember he told him, don't go tell anybody. Just go to the priest. And like most people, he did not obey Jesus. Verse 45. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely. And he spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. Isn't it interesting That Jesus told the leper not to tell anyone, and he disobeyed Jesus, and he told everyone. Yet today, as Christians, we are commanded to tell everyone about Jesus, and many Christians tell no one. Just the opposite. In verse 45, when it says, you know, they came to him from every direction, I believe, this really spoke to my heart as we finish chapter 1 today, and, and wrap it up with just a quick... Applications. I believe the same response to Jesus can happen today. That I believe that people can come from every direction to meet and find Jesus when genuine believers will shine the light of Jesus for people to see. I believe that. How can that happen? When we show genuine sympathy and compassion for those in need, like Jesus did to Peter's mother in law, to the people of the city, to the leper, it will help draw people to Jesus. We are His hands today. We are His feet today. We have the opportunity today to bring people to Jesus from every direction when we allow Him to rule and reign in our life and show the same kind of sympathy and compassion that He showed. If you believe that, say yes. That's the challenge to us. Let's not forget what the name Christian means. It means little Christ. I hope that through the Gospel of Mark... We'll say, you know, we'll look at what Jesus did and we'll say, I want to do the same things. I want to have the same kind of compassion. Let me give you some practical applications as we close this morning from chapter one. Number one, we are called to serve just like Jesus served. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve others and have compassion for others. And it will draw people, not to us but to Jesus. Number two, we are called to be under his authority today, just as we read and saw his authority in in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. How does he have authority in our lives today when we allow him to have that authority, when he sits on the throne of our heart and rules and reigns in our life? Let's not forget, church, when we accept Jesus Christ, we don't just accept Jesus the Savior, we accept Jesus the Lord. That's why in the scriptures he's referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the, Lord, the word Lord means? Master, owner, boss, shot caller. And we need to let people see that Jesus rules and reigns and has authority in our life. Just like he had authority and it got people's attention. And the way that we do that is through his word. That we allow his word to have Dominion and authority in our life. Number three, we are called to get people's attention like Jesus got people's attention. Remember what it says in the Gospel of Matthew? Let your light, Christians, so shine before men that they may see your good works, your dedication to Christ, and glorify not you, but who? Your Father in heaven. Uh, Let me ask you this. What is God doing in your life today? In your personal life, in your marriage, in your family, as an as a employee, as an employer. What are you allowing God to do in and through your life that is so strong that people are amazed at what God is doing in your life? That they're astonished, that they're blown away, that people go, I don't know what you have, but I want some of it. And you have an opportunity to introduce them to the one that makes all the difference, Jesus, God's servant. Number four, We are called to show compassion and sympathy like Jesus. And I believe when we do, people will come from every direction because there is no shortage of people in our sphere of influences that need compassion, that need sympathy, that need someone to genuinely love them and genuinely care for them. And then number five, we are called to repent and believe in Jesus. And I know many of you have made that decision, but if you're here today and you've never made that decision... I hope today you'll make that decision to turn from your way of life and your sin and turn to Jesus.